Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. Just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is that this channel has been up and running for just about five years now. Five years more or less to the day. And I would like to give a big thank you to each and every one of you who have decided to tune in to an episode of Black Box Online Radio, no matter how big or how small. And over the years, there have been several requests to talk about the case of Stephen Avery and a response to making a murderer. And at long last, the, those requests will be granted. And I would like to give a big shout out to Jerome from the French Wrecking Crew for not only encouraging me to finally get around to begin this series, but also to provide me with a couple of books. And the one that I'll be discussing today is Illusion of Justice, Inside Making a Murderer and America's Broken System by Jerome F. Buting. In a previous episode, I called him Booting, but uh, very clearly from Making a Murderer, they say his last name is Buting, and he is the defense counsel in The State versus Avery. But um, another very fast announcement is, if this is indeed the first episode that you're listening to from my channel, I do a regular segment every Monday called Just That, Zodiac Mondays, all about the Zodiac Killer, and lately they've been coming out as Zodiac Killer news reports, and on Wednesdays I've been doing a segment about the Long Island Serial Killer, so if you have not subscribed to this channel yet, I would invite you to do so, and um, you can always hit the like button, it really helps that out. And also, if you would like to download this program for free, you can go over to Launchpad 1, there, there is a free podcast download, that's the pure podcast version, audio only. If you would like to download the video version, you can use YouTube Premium, but for that you have to pay for it. Launchpad 1 is free, there's a link to that in the description box. And if you want to follow along with these discussions even more, a great way to support the channel is to go over to buymeacoffee.com. There's a link to that in the description box if you would like to make a contribution to support the show. Always welcome. And I think you guys could tell that I've only recently gotten into this material. This is a very famous true crime case, and for a while I was looking at some posts on Facebook where people were saying that um, stuff about Stephen Avery being released from prison, and then I saw that, oh, they still wanted to free Stephen Avery, and I was thinking, well, what on earth is going on? I mean, what exactly happened? And as someone who was just not even a casual observer, but a distant observer, it um, wasn't quite clear everything in the situation. And watching the episodes on the Netflix series Making a Murderer provided a lot of clarity. And to be clear, I have gone through the first five episodes of the series, which I will be discussing today, as well as some parts of the book Illusion of Justice. And to help us out, I'm going to go over to the website joetrending.com that has an episode, an article rather, called Making a Murderer, a Timeline of the Events. And this um was actually posted in between the uh, season one and season two of Making a Murderer. But to look at their timeline, it says, on the, on, um, the 23rd of March, 1981, Stephen Avery is convicted of two felony burglary charges for breaking into the Northern Frontier Bar. September 2nd, 1982, Stephen is charged with cruelty to animals for allegedly pouring gasoline on a cat and throwing the cat into a bonfire. Stephen pleads no contest. Absolutely horrible, mind you, but that's beside the point. On January 1st, 
and January 3rd of 1985, Stephen Avery runs his cousin Sandy Morris off the road and points an unloaded rifle at her and yells at her to stop spreading rumors about him. Sandy Morris is the wife of Manitowoc County Sheriff's Deputy, of a Manitowoc County Sheriff's Deputy, and Stephen admits to what he did and is charged with multiple felonies, including attempted kidnapping. July 29, 1985, while Stephen is out on bail awaiting trial for the Sandy Morris incident, a prominent woman named Penny Bernstein is sexually assaulted and killed while running on a local beach. Sandy Morris's friend, Judy Dvorak, is the Manitowoc Sheriff's deputy assigned to go take Penny's statement. And to be very clear, even despite what that article wrote out, uh, Penny was not killed. Absolutely not, because she's going to become an integral player later on, but that just goes to show you how some sources online are presenting the material. But no, absolutely not. She was um not murdered at that specific incident, but she was indeed attacked. And that brings us to Stephen Avery. Stephen is 23 years old at the time, and he has a wife and five small children, including a six-day-old set of twins and a stepson, when he is arrested for sexual assault and attempted murder within hours of the attack. So I think this article even cleared up that little detail earlier about that must have been a typo on their part, because clearly this person understands that she wasn't murdered at that specific incident. In July of 1985, the Manitoba County City Police Department is surveying a sexual predator named Gregory Allen every day that month, except the day that Penny is attacked. August of 85, Sheriff Tom Kokorik and District Attorney Dennis Vogel are told by the police and their colleagues that Gregory Allen should be investigated, but the two refuse to change course. None of the information about Gregory Allen is ever turned over to Stephen's defense. That brings up a whole set of questions that I will say later on. Um, on December 14th of 1985, despite 16 alibi witnesses who can account for Stephen's whereabouts every minute of the day of the assault, a six-man, six-woman jury deliberates for nine hours before finding Stephen Avery guilty of attempted first-degree homicide, first-degree sexual assault, and false imprisonment. And being very clear, as you heard, attempted as attempted homicide, but first-degree sexual assault and false imprisonment. January of 86, Stephen is sentenced by the Manitowoc County Circuit Court Judge Fred Hazelwood to 32 years in prison. In the other sentence that he had was for the Sandy Morris incident, which he was given six years, and that was to run concurrent. And a lot of people ask questions about this. As I understand, there is concurrent and consecutive, like if you ever watch a crime drama or even a real-life true crime program, when the judge says that you will serve the sentences consecutively, that would mean that he would have to do all 32 years and then do six years. But if he's doing it concurrently, then he can do the six years and the 32 years at the same time. And after his first six years in prison, the um, Sandy Morris conviction would no longer hold, if I've understood. But um, there are some lawyers who tune into this program. They can always correct me if I get any of the legalese out of whack. May of 1987, Stephen's wife Lori files for a divorce and petitions the court to terminate Stephen's visitation with his children. 1995, Gregory Allen is convicted of a violent sexual assault in Green Bay and sentenced to 60 years in prison. That guy Gregory Allen seems like an absolutely despicable human being, mind you. 
on April 24th of 1996, Stevens' lawyer files a post-conviction motion and request of an evidentiary hearing. In September of 1996, DNA science is advanced enough to divide the population into groups and find genetic markers. Stephen and Penny happen to have the same alleles, so at this point DNA cannot exclude Stephen as Penny's attacker. September of 97, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals denies Stephen's motion and upholds the, the conviction. October of 97, Stephen's petition for review is filed with the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, November 20th of 1997, the Wisconsin Supreme Court denies Stephen's petition for review. 2001, Stephen's mother Dolores writes to Barry Sheck of the Innocence Project in New York asking him to take on Stephen's case. You might remember Barry Sheck as one of the lawyers in the O.J. Simpson case, and he was the guy who challenged all the DNA evidence back then and tried to tear it apart, and he had a big confrontation with a witness named Dennis Fung on the stand. 2002, Judge Hazelwood grants the Wisconsin Innocence Project's motion for new scientific testing, and in September of 2003, Stephen Avery is released from prison. He is the first person in Wisconsin's history to be exonerated through DNA evidence, and the DNA matched Gregory Allen. So they had the wrong person, and you might be, see where this is going. Not only did they have the wrong person, they didn't properly investigate. And by they, I'm referring to a very large group of people. It's not just one or two people who are putting these things together. It really is um, the subtitle of Jerome Buting's book says, it's America's broken justice system. They're trying to show how somebody has been vilified, and the authorities do not seem to be doing anything to correct these types of errors. But you might have um, been paying attention to the title, Making a Murderer. That was something that caught my eye. I really, um, as an absolute newcomer to this case, I did not understand about how these two true crime cases were going to be inter interlocking. Because as I said very clearly, despite that little typo in this article, uh, Penny was not murdered. And at one point, you know, she even points Stephen Avery out of a lineup, but he wasn't the guy. It wasn't his DNA. You can't really get away with something like that. So they show that he was wrongfully convicted. But, well, let's just get back to the timeline. And uh, the day after Stephen's exoneration, the members of the Sheriff's Department involved in the 1995 phone call regarding Gregory Allen's admission, uh, Sergeant Andrew Colburn and Lieutenant James Lank write reports about the phone call that they had eight years earlier, and Sheriff Peterson places his report in a safe. October of 2004. Disappointed that the Attorney General let law enforcement off the hook, Stephen files a $36 million civil rights lawsuit against the Manitowoc County the former sheriff, Tom Kokurik, and the former district attorney, Dennis Vogel, in both their official and individual capacity. Because I talk about several different true crime cases here on this channel, or many true crime cases even for the Anything Goes Friday segment, where any subject is fair game, I once did an episode on the case of Bruce Lisker, who uh, was wrongfully imprisoned for something, to the best of our knowledge, and he was trying to get a settlement from the L.A. County, um, not exactly Sheriff's Department, I guess just, um, the county in general. And he served 26 years in prison, and his settlement was for $7 million. 
and 40% of it had to go to um, the attorney fees. The only reason I'm telling you is $36 million is going to be a very large settlement for Wisconsin. It's going to be a very big lawsuit for the state of Wisconsin. And on November 4th, oh sorry, November of 2004, Stephen's civil lawyers discover suspicious decision-making at high levels in the Attorney General's office and consider the Attorney General as defendant to the lawsuit. And this is the part where everything is going to change. On October 31st, that's Halloween of 2005, a 25-year-old photographer named Teresa Holbach has an appointment with Stephen to take pictures of his sister Barb's van for Auto Trader magazine. And the Averys have more or less a salvage yard, and they have a whole bunch of uh, vehicles that are on the uh, property. But Teresa Holbach is going to become perhaps the most important player in the entire story, even more important than Stephen Avery. November 1st, 2005, the day after Teresa's photographs are completed, Barb's van and salvage yard or shop, the Avery Bill, a piece of legislation that came out of the Avery Task Force, passes the Wisconsin State Legislature, and the bill is intended to reform law enforcement's investigative practices statewide. And as I understand from watching Making a Murderer at this point, Stephen Avery is someone who is almost a local celebrity. He's featured at a lot of executive functions, even with some high-ranking individuals. He is seen as someone who was wrongfully in prison and exonerated, which I don't think anyone scientifically is disputing that. But then you see this $36 million lawsuit. Is that going to be a motive for somebody to try and interfere? November 3rd, 2005. Teresa's mother, Karen Hallback, reports Teresa missing. The media report that Stephen was one of the last appointments that Teresa had on the day she disappeared makes news. Sergeant Andrew Colburn answers Stephen's questions about... Oh, Sergeant Andrew Colburn questions Stephen about Teresa's visit on Halloween. Stephen says she completed her business transaction within a few minutes and then left. On November 4th of 2005, Stephen gives Lieutenant James Lank and Detective Dave Remicker permission to search his trailer, and they allegedly find nothing. November 5th, volunteer searches are granted and permission is also granted to search the Avery Auto Salvage Yard, also known as the ASYD, to look for Teresa or her car, a Toyota RAV4. It is a 40-acre property with more than 3,000 vehicles, and they find Teresa's car in about 30 to 35 minutes. Law enforcement takes over the salvage yard and conducts an eight-day search, all the while excluding the Averys from their homes and businesses. The authorities hold daily press conferences about the case, citing a conflict of interest due to Stephen's pending lawsuit. The uh, MCSD turns control of the investigation over to the Calumet County Sheriff's Department and the Wisconsin Division of Criminal Investigation, where Teresa resides. The county detective, Mark Wigert, and DCI Special Agent Tom Fossbender are named co-lead investigators of the force. Stephen is interrogated by Wickard and Fossbender. He maintains his innocence and says the evidence is being planted by the Manitowoc County officers in order to frame him and derail his $36 million lawsuit. Also, within days of Stephen's arrest, he would receive $425,000 from the state as wrongful conviction compensation, but because of his arrest, 
the money never material materializes. So there's a lot of reason why they would want it out for this guy. But while they're searching his property, most notably, they say they found a key that belonged to Teresa Hallback. And very simply, it was found in Stephen Avery's trailer with um, only his things. Meaning, how else could it get there? On November 10th, and going all the way for to um, at least three months later, the authorities are searching. But on November 10th is when it begins. Authorities announced that they have found Teresa's car key, as I said before, but also burned remains in Stephen's burn pit and Stephen's blood in Teresa's car. Stephen is also charged with Teresa's murder and mutilation. So you see the foundation of the name making a murderer. And it's an absolutely tragic story all around. Firstly, rest in peace to Teresa Holbach. And as you see, this is going to be part of a multi-part series. So what exactly happened to her? Now, there's several more pieces on this timeline. And I have to go to December 14th of 2006. I'm going to be jumping ahead a bit because we're going to introduce Stephen's uh, defense attorney, uh, Jerome, also known as Jerry Buting, the defense investigator, uh, Pete Bates, and Mark Wigert and Norm Gom. And they examined a, a vial of Stephen Avery's blood from his 1985 case, which was kept in a cardboard box in the Manitowoc County Clerk. Um, clerk's office. The county clerk of court's office is the exact name. The seal had been cut, and the vial appears to have been tampered with, and Lieutenant Lank was the evidence custodian, and his signature is on the 2002 evidence transmittal form when evidence was requested by the Wisconsin Innocence Project indicating that he would have known about the blood vial. So, I think that they're trying to show that there could have been a very clear case of evidence tampering. How did Stephen Avery's blood get into her car? Well, somebody put it there. It doesn't mean that he would have necessarily had to have been there. And I think that this raised a lot of questions for me. And as I understood it, that in the United States of America, you have the right to a fair trial. And if the defense team can show that there is even the smallest amount of evidence tampering. The person is supposed to be exonerated because they didn't get a fair trial. Their rights were violated. I'm sure you've heard this at some point in the true crime world. And also, even if the prosecution makes a mistake, let's say, for example, that, um, like the uh, Casey Anthony trial, for example, when they talk about the number of chloroform searches that she did on Google, searching the word chloroform, they actually, um misstated the number of that. They said that it was a lot more than she had done. Even if they give a piece of incorrect information to the jury, that person is supposed to be acquitted because you have the right to a fair trial. And Casey Anthony wasn't acquitted for that reason. It was other reasons. I have numerous episodes about here on Black Box Online Radio if anybody would like to listen. But the whole point is that if someone's rights have not been completely granted or someone's rights have not been upheld, rather, then they're supposed to be let go. And the show Making a Murderer does a very good job of creating a cliffhanger and creating the room of suspicion and doubt, and they show that a hypodermic needle was used to to go into the blood vial at some point, meaning that somebody would have had access to Stephen Avery's blood. But at the same time, even as I say these words now, 
I mean, you you heard the statement here. It just shows that there was um, evidence transmittal in 2002 when evidence was requested by the Wisconsin Innocence Project. Well, could the seal have been broken then? Could the uh, tape have been placed back on the box at a different time? Could the hypodermic needle have been put into that blood vial at a different time? That's the way that the lawyers are going to play the case. But if anybody has some more extensive experience with the law, feel free to weigh in. And thank you so much to uh, JoeTrending.com for the timeline. There are a lot more pieces on the timeline, but right now I would like to go to something from Jerry Buting's own book, Illusion of Justice. And this is from the introduction, also known as the opening statement. On a blustery Wednesday afternoon, Dean and I met at his Madison, Wisconsin office for our first discussion about representing Stephen Avery, the most famous innocent man in the state's history. It was about 3 p.m. on March 1st of 2006. At the very end, Dean and I started speaking. A new drama was coming to an end 135 miles away that we knew nothing about. But that would change everything. A 16-year-old boy was sitting on a couch in an, a room of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office. His moon face was hidden in his palms, and they were pressed on his head. Seated next to him, the boy's mother tried to wrench off the mask formed by his hands, but his fingers wouldn't yield. Leaning forward, elbows on his legs, and head in his hands, he bent into a position that people are instructed to take during a plane crash. He spent nearly the whole day with the, like this, but he was with interrogators and offered grunts of yas to one leading question after another. One of his longest utterances was to ask, if he could get back for class at 1.29 p.m., explaining, I have a project due in the sixth hour. A man spoke to the boy's mother and assured in his tone, We've been doing this job a long time, Barb, and we can tell when people are telling the truth. The boy's name was Brendan Dassey. Although his name was unfamiliar to Dean and me then, we would soon be finding out a lot more about Brendan Dassey and what happened that day. While Brendan was seated miserably in Manitowoc, Dean and I spoke about my joining the defense of Stephen Avery, who was accused of killing a woman at his family's auto salvage yard and burning her body. Dean had also been retained. For close to an hour, we had gone over practical matters like the division of labor, what had been learned by the public defenders who had been his lawyers when, we first ar when he was first arrested, and the resources that were available for Avery to hire experts and investigators, and where the case stood. Up to that point, the charges seemed based on strictly circumstantial evidence. Then the phone rang. An Avery relative was calling. Dean's end of the conversation at the beginning was, uh-huh, uh-huh, and yes, yes. I half listened and glanced around the office. On the walls, he had a few pictures of art depicting events in legal history. Now I could hear his side of the phone call take a turn. You've got to be kidding me, he was saying. Arrested? The nephew? For what? At age 43, Stephen Avery had already fallen once into the gulf between what is practiced and what is preached in the American criminal justice system. It took him more than two decades to climb out and less than two years to fall back in. Stephen Avery had spent 18 years in prison for a sexual assault he had nothing to do with before the real culprit was identified through DNA testing. I just have to stop right there because doesn't that give you any just room for doubt about how many people were wrongly convicted just because they had been targeted? They didn't have things like DNA decades and decades ago, the early part of the 20th century, the middle part of the 20th century. And even as I was talking about Barry Sheck and uh, Dennis Fung, even the 
early part of the 90s, DNA was not something that was very reliable, even though people were slowly starting to understand it. And the exoneration of Stephen Avery didn't happen until the early part of the new millennium. How many people do you think have been convicted for crimes that they didn't commit? Well, I guess that's why the show is called Making a Murderer. It was a lot easier to do back then. Now Avery was facing an even more serious charge. The murder of a young woman, Teresa Hallback, who had come to his family's auto salvage yard to take advertising photos for a trade magazine. In the story initially laid out by the authorities, before there was a trial, before anyone outside of law enforcement had looked at any of the evidence, Avery's guilt was a foregone conclusion. Some of the victim's burned remains were found near a garage used by Avery. His blood was in her car. Her car key had been discovered in his bedroom, but this tidy narrative of detective work grew messier as the details emerged about the peculiar circumstances under which the supposedly incriminating evidence against Avery had been gathered. Some of the investigators were not supposed to have been on the Avery property at all, or indeed have anything to do with this case, because they were connected in various ways to the frame-up that had sent Avery to prison two decades earlier. Once their involvement had been revealed, public certainty about Avery's guilt began to erode. And one more time, this is from the book Illusion of Justice, Inside Making a Murderer and America's Broken Justice System by Jerome F. Buting. He is, he is frequently referred to as Jerry Buting. And I know that he is an attorney. And I know that he is defending Stephen Avery. And lots of attorneys are very articulate, but Jerry Buting is a very, very good public speaker. Yes, of course, he's trying to be convincing and persuasive, but he's very good at it if you watch Making a Murderer. And I'm just through episode 5, and I said they leave with lots of cliffhangers. Well, at the end of episode 5, they really highlight everything that Jerry Buting was just talking about in those paragraphs that I was reading, about how certain members of law enforcement are on the record, and in certain places, revealing information that they shouldn't have known days beforehand. I mean, they, they've uncovered evidence that shows that someone has made a phone call and they've spoken of evidence before they should have had any knowledge of this or before Teresa Hallback's vehicle was even found on the Avery salvage yard. So you can definitely see that um, some people are just trying to avoid answering questions and you can't really pinpoint immediately from just five episodes in and reading a little bit of Jerry Buting's book who is completely responsible for everything, but it definitely shows that law enforcement knew what they were doing. And I think that's the overall thesis of um, the show in the book, that this person was specifically targeted. They had a reason to target him. Firstly, it's so they didn't have to pay him $425,000. They want to make the $36 million lawsuit go away. They had it out for him also in the 1980s, even though Stephen Avery did some criminal actions. It appeared that... Um, there were some personal vendettas against him, as well as the sole fact that they could have had a very, very strong suspect investigated, but they chose not to do that. Even in the 1990s, they chose not to do that. And if it weren't for DNA, he probably would have served the entire 36-year sentence for um, the attack on Penny. But with this one, as they said um, very clearly, and Jerry Buting said very clearly, this is a much more serious charge, the murder of Teresa Holback. So that is where part one is going to conclude here, and please tune in next week on the Anything Goes Friday segment for part two of Making a Murderer and discussing the case of Stephen Avery. If you like this episode one more time, you can hit the like button. And as always, 
You can follow the show on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And blackboxonlineradioatol.com is the place where you can write this program. If you have anything to share, you can send it over there or in the comment section down below. And there is always blackboxnid88 on Instagram. And I will see you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.